0: The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. This is the Word of God from Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Janae, for the reading. Thank you for Devin and the worship team for helping us to worship our Lord today. Now uh, that lady who just uh, read the scripture has uh, a talent you may not know that she can dance. She can dance. And she's actually pretty good at it. I'm not good at it. I don't have any rhythm. But what's worse than that is I don't care that I don't have any rhythm. I sometimes sort of think that dancing is kind of silly looking. Now, I realize I just insulted about 20 or 30 young ladies in the audience today, but you need not ever take me serious about anything that I'm saying. But when you just sort of watch people dancing, you can step back and say to yourself, or at least I do, like, what is going on and why are you doing that? I have pondered that if there were aliens from another planet that were watching humans, earthlings dancing, that they might say to themselves, like, what what is what is happening right now, and you know i I don't know why are they doing that i I don't know what does it accomplish? I don't know I don't really know why people are dancing now, i'm I'm gonna confess to you that if if cool and the gang are singing celebrate or if the Bee Gees are doing staying alive, I have found my hips to maybe slightly move a little bit. <laughs> I admit that um but here's the thing if if i did uh in any way insult you or hurt your feelings about making fun of dancing, um, I'll just say this, that what may happen in the future is that I will be dancing when I go to meet the Lord, or He comes to get me. Whatever it is, I may find myself in His presence doing something that, at least on one sermon, I sort of made fun of it. But just overall, the whole business just seems like something that it's not really in my heart to do, and sometimes I think that makes me wonder a little bit about maybe maybe what's wrong with me. I don't know. But maybe dancing is in our future. If you're one of those that doesn't do it, who thinks it sometimes looks kind of silly, who would uh, die if they had to ever go to the ballet, that would be worse than the electric chair to me going to the ballet. Can you imagine that? Uh, there's actually humans that do that. I mean, go to it, let alone actually dance. But, but, but I may be doing that in the future because... I will see something different about my Lord that I've never seen before. That may be what's in my future. Now, David, the psalmist here in Psalm 30, brings up the notion of dancing, so I better give some consideration to it. This is our last in the psalm series this summer, Psalm 30. Uh, It has been a challenging series. I think Adam and others may agree to that um, in forming sermons. It's really, really mostly been pretty hard. But uh, this is what I saw in Psalm 30. I'd like to present it to you today. Three things, testimony, perspective, and worship. From Psalm 30, testimony, perspective, and worship. All right, so testimony. Here I'm thinking about how you describe your salvation, because that's related to worship. I don't mean specifically that the three-minute testimony um, that that you are often asked to give, which I think is a wonderful thing. But when you're, when you're actually explaining how you came to Christ and what he did for you, there's something we can learn in Psalm 30 about an effective testimony. So the verse one says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes re- rejoice over me. So part of your testimony, I think, ought to include Rescue. Rescue. Drawn me up is the wording of someone pulling up a bucket from a well. That, that can describe what we were and how we were and where we were before we came to Christ. But, but even as believers, we often feel like we are in a deep well. It happens in life, dark, cold, wet, looking up into a little hole of light. Can anybody hear me? Does anybody, anybody know I'm down here? The psalmist says, I will raise you up, Lord, because you have raised me up. I'm giving God the credit for my rescue. When I get off my deathbed and stand up, I'm going to go out among the people again and I'm going to tell people uh, that you are the one that brought me up out of this well. I want them to see you and not me. So how do you guys see your salvation? Is it sometimes, if not the way you look at it, is it appears to other people that salvation is a ticket to heaven? Do people see you as someone, what you are is someone who added religion to your life. Or maybe your coworkers and friends think you're one of those persons that takes religion really, really seriously. Is that what your testimony is, though? Or do they consider you or you consider yourself somebody who was rescued from slavery, misery, and death? Jeremy Packard is our church firefighter. Now, look, if if you were found unconscious in a room engulfed in flames and he broke through the flames... And rescued you and gave you his oxygen. Would you keep that a secret? Brian Shepherd's a scuba diver. If you were trapped in a sinking boat and Brian rescued you and gave gave you his oxygen tank and brought you up, would you would you tell anyone that? Would you leave any details out in telling the story? Would you even ever grow tired of telling this story? So I think a good testimony includes describing what it means to be saved, to be rescued. Verse 2 says, Oh Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. I think your testimony should include your former helplessness. Rescue is a part of your testimony, and helplessness. We wanted to declare to everyone listening to us that we had no ability to rescue ourselves. This is going to be especially important for a whole bunch of you all, not everybody, but a bunch of you, because people may consider you to be a particularly good person or an especially successful person or a really, really smart person. And so and so they think you sort of just figured that out, or maybe that was something that you added on to your good life. And you, there's a lot of you, are, you really are good people. You've been, you really are good and smart and successful. Maybe not all of you, but a lot of you are. Your testimony, though, has got to to, to talk about that you are actually a helpless person. People need to hear what the man born blind in John's Gospel, chapter 9, said. After being healed by Jesus, he kept declaring to the skeptics, yes, I am the man who was born blind. I could do nothing. I just sat there and begged every single day. I was stuck that way till I died, until somebody came and helped me. Jesus. You'll have to say that you once were considered considered yourself lame until Jesus came to you. You'll have to say that you were unclean like a leper until Jesus cleansed you. You'll have to say that you were deaf until Jesus spoke to you. You have to say that you were blind until Jesus caused you to see the truth. I think in a good testimony, you'll have to say that you were a beggar until Jesus gave you the bread of eternal life. Can you say this in your testimony? Verse 3, O Lord, you brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Your testimony should include restoration. You can say that you know what God intended you to be. That's a part of the Bible story. You were made for fellowship with God and to live with him eternally. In fact, you can say that you were created for happiness in your testimony, testimony, you're saying God restored you to that. People are very experienced, you guys, with broken relationships. Everyone seems to have them. Marriages break up, families split up, friendships go sour. People begin to believe that there's no relationship on earth that lasts no matter what may happen. But speaking of restoration, you have much to say in your testimony. A good testimony includes, for instance, restoration of relationships Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, that as a new creation, we were from God who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. That's what we have, reconciliation to God, a restoration of a relationship. We used to be enemies, but not anymore. You can know that God loves you without measure. You're a child of God if you're saved. That's a restoration. A good testimony includes restoration of the body. Oh, we just see this all the time. She's at Home Depot a couple of weeks ago and I saw an old lady, very, very short, very, very stooped down with a cane and it was the slowest walking human being I have ever seen in my life. I saw several snails just race past her. But I was, as I looked at her, I was thinking like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that can be restored. So doctors, nurses, hospitals, surgeries, medicine, physical therapy, hospice, funeral homes, cemeteries, those are all things that will be a part of the past. We declare that these don't discourage us because we know that their destiny is to to cease. We believe we'll be raised as Jesus was raised. So in part of our testimony, we're talking about hope, the hope of a restored body. But also a good testimony includes restoration of the world, which is what everybody's thinking a lot about right now. Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the words of Jesus. No more global warming, drought, earthquakes, virus plagues, hurricanes, floods. No racism, no prejudice, no poverty. Military equipment melted into farming equipment. The world is also going to be restored. Restored. That's a part of the Christian testimony. Verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. A good testimony causes the church to want to praise with you. Of course, worshiping can be done in a solitary ways, but the natural inclination of a believer is to share joy. That's one of the things that we're doing when we come together on Sunday morning. Together, corporately, we're sharing to each other. Our intention should be that worship and praise for God is generated from others. Singing gospel centered songs is singing your own testimony. I don't don't know why you guys can't figure that out a little bit better. I don't know what you're doing when Devin is leading us in worship. What are you thinking? You're giving a testimony at least in our service, five times. And you're saying the testimony, not just to the Lord, but also to the person on your right and left, who are saying the same thing as you are to you. Here's a question. When we sing praises to the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven and earth, when we sing praises to him in the new heaven and earth, and we are, will you sing louder then than you do now? Or just the same? Are you going to raise your hands then, but you don't do it now? Will tears come out of your eyes in the new heaven and earth as you sing praises to Jesus then, but, but, but they don't now? Why is that so? Why is there is a lack of emotion in, the, in your testifying to the greatness of God? Once a week. That's pitiful. Finally, the beginning and end of our testimony must be the Lord. The psalmist raises up the Lord at the beginning. I will extol you, O Lord. And at the end of his testimony, give thanks to his holy name. The best Christian music focuses more on the one who rescues than on the person who is rescued. I've never had a kidney stone before. I believe every word you say about the excruciating pain about that. What would you think about for one day in your life that every time you use the word I, every time in a day, the Lord gives you a sharp kidney stone in your body every time? What would the day be like? I, 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 I. Galatians 6.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ Christ. Who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So, a proper testimony diminishes the eyes and accentuates the Lord, the Lord of glory. Right. That's testimony. I see a perspective in the psalmist too perspective. Verse five For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The psalmist speaks for us when he talks about God's anger. Is God angry with the sin of the world, folks? Yes. And he's always judging it. Right now, he's judging sin. He's trying to wake up the world before that final judgment comes. Is God angry at any of his children? No. But it feels like it sometimes. The harsh trial that disciplines us is momentary. You'll remember Apostle Paul's perspective. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Most babies are born between 1 and 8 a.m. What was the night like before the birth of your babies? At, At best, it was uncomfortable, but at worst, it was excruciating contractions and stuff like that. But joy came in the morning. Um, sickness feels acute during the night because there's nothing else to occupy your attention. So it always, everything always hurts worse in the middle of the night. I can remember distinctly as a little boy with either an ear infection or a throat infection, going to the doctor, getting some antibiotic, beginning to take the antibiotic that day or that afternoon, And just being in misery that night, but in the morning, it had begun to work, and in the morning, there was joy of, oh, I feel so much better. Your day may have seemed miserable, or your week was miserable, but all of this is temporary, you guys. In fact, everything is temporary. All this stress and anxiety and tiredness is mostly unnecessary, but it must be weighed against the eternal glory to come. The psalmist in verse 5 gives us a perspective that helps us, and we got to review that every day, I think, the right perspective. He says in verse 6 As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. Now, look, most of you are kind of a little bit sketchy about that statement I shall never be moved. Is that arrogance? Is that, is that some sort of pride in David? There's no indication within the text that that was a sinful thing going on. He, he gives credit to the Lord. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So he's giving credit to the Lord, but it sounds a little bit presumptuous. we we'll have to learn, though, that, that um, life is composed of God's prosperous times for us, but then he interrupts it quite a bit. And quite harshly at times, to get our attention for something. And when that happens, we often feel like God might be mad at us. Um, in fact, he's ordained sickness and testing and trials. and there There is going to be weeping in this life. And that gets interrupted even in the middle of our prosperity. I think so David represents all of us in feeling like God has turned away or become distant when we get sick or lose a job or lose a loved one go into uh, uh, unexpected debt. Just sometimes when God doesn't answer a prayer, it just feels like he's turned away. You will say loudly, I know you're going to do this, that life consists of trials and disappointments and hardships. Which one of you is so naive not to know that that's true and would say that? Yet when they come, we always seem to have that same typical reaction. Why is God mad at me? What's going on? Part of the right perspective is to expect expect that uninterrupted comfortableness and smooth, stress-free living is not promised and should not be expected. But the right perspective is to see how this is from a loving God who is at work in your life building faith and endurance. There's so much more to be said about that, but that's just how I touch on it in this psalm. Now look at this interesting and bold perspective of the psalmist in verses 8 and 9. This is a really interesting thing that he would say. I want you to see this. To you, Lord, Lord, I cry, and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. You know what, Lord, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? The logic of his life, and therefore the logic of his plea is this. If I die, Lord... You gain no profit. If I die, you know what, Lord? You lose a worshiper. He sort of makes a business plea. Count your profits and losses, Lord. If I die, you gain nothing. And you lose profit. From the psalmist's perspective, worship comes to an end at death. He doesn't know back then. He doesn't know all that we know that the New Testament will say about about the afterlife and things like that. But from his perspective, Lord, you don't want to lose me because you lose a worshiper. It's sort of like saying, God, you're a really great person, but what you need is a great publicist. I'm that man. Or, God, you have a really great product, and what you need is a good vice president of marketing. I'm that man, so don't let me die. I can do that for you. Imagine making worship of God such a priority that we would use that as a reason for God to not let us die. What if when we were dying, we said that to him? And he thought about it and said, you know, you know you're know, you right. You have a good point there. I don't have enough really good worshipers of me down here, so I'm going to give you 20 more years. But what if God said to me, are you kidding the only time you worship me is for one hour on a Sunday morning. And you do it, by the way, pretty half-heartedly. There are 52 of those, by the way, 52 Sundays. And you only show up for 40 because the other ones are at the beach. But when you do that, you, even, you barely even sing. What if he said that to me? I like that idea of the psalmist. I want him to look down at all of us and say, these are fantastic worshipers of me. I love it. I'm just going to let them live for a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer because I just love it. I would hate for him to say, your worship stinks. It doesn't matter. I'm taking you on home. Let's go. I'll teach you how to worship up here. I'll teach you how to dance up here. Lastly, thirdly, worship. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What I like about the phrase here about dancing is the 180 degree turn. The most extreme opposite of mourning to me is dancing. Now, everyone's had the experience of mourning. We experience the unique pain of the loss of someone we cared about. And we probably experienced that many times in life. But what we commonly experience is that the mourning just turns into not mourning anymore or less mourning. Or in other words, our mourning turns into going back to typical life. But the psalmist here says, the Lord has turned my mourning 180 degrees into dancing. So the opposite of mourning is not getting back to normal or carrying on. It's the total opposite of mourning. It's dancing. The only time the New Testament speaks of dancing is on the lips of Jesus. Old Testament talks about it a couple times, part of that Hebrew kind of culture, but Jesus uses it in parables. The most famous is Jesus' parable of the so-called prodigal son, in which after the lost son comes home in repentance. The father gives a great party, and Jesus is careful to put in his story that there was food and drink and music and dancing. But the older brother, the older brother will not celebrate his brother's obedience, disobedience and lostness. Even when he does a 180-degree turn in repentance, he still won't dance. The father's perspective is come, come son and join the party with the food and the music and the dancing because this, your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Ah, That's the reason to dance. Salvation. All of you parents also have this experience of taking off the dirty clothes of your little one. I don't know why toddlers can't Dress themselves. You have to take off their dirty clothes. They don't even know their clothes are dirty. And then you you change them into something clean. So in this striking picture, the psalmist says that God has dressed him like a parent helps children get their clothing changed. God unties the sackcloth and removes it, and he gives them a new outfit. It's called gladness. This is why we worship. Our lives are a complete turnaround. You've got to say that in your testimony. Even if you don't feel it or understand it, you've got to explain that to people. That's why you worship Him. At some time, we looked at our sin and saw it for what God calls it, selfishness, rebellion, disobedience, weakness, slavery, self-achievement, whatever, and we turn from that and around to the salvation that's in Jesus Christ alone. Our filthy, sin-stained clothing was exchanged for white robes of righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As Revelation 21 says, we are a bride clothed for her husband. And in the next chapter Revelation 22, it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's why we worship. I got three lessons for you, real simple lessons here. Number one, don't forget, God disrupts our lives. He's the one that's doing it. He's doing it on purpose. Be ready for that. The psalmist is constantly having his life disrupted by things. Prosperity does not grow you. It doesn't. Complacency is dangerous. So you should expect disruptions. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Remember, God is at work. Expect even that God will feel distant at times. He's waiting for your response to that. He's not distant, though. Our faith and endurance is being tested and refined. So don't forget, God disrupts life. Secondly, sorrow is replaced by joy. Now, I know you know that. You know, I, I just said it. You've read it. I know you know that. But you got to say that over and over again in your life. You just have to do that. You got to review that. You got to tell that to each other. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, the disciples had sorrow for two nights, but joy came on Sunday morning. Jesus in person has left us with, with the Holy Spirit, but still, we've never seen him. There's a lot of trouble going on, climate change, war, killing, disease. I can't believe in the county next to us, two weeks ago, six people, six homicides, separate homicides in one housing project in Durham, North Carolina. You don't care, do you? Neither do I it's over there i'm worried about other things why this is a messy messy world we're looking forward to we're looking forward to the joy that's to come in a way in a way we've been going through 2000 years of night but jesus is coming back joy comes in the morning stay faithful Keep your joy. Dance a little because of what is coming. And thirdly, worship is our eternal destiny. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to you forever. Worship is our origin and worship is our destiny. Get good at it right now. Practice it a lot. Worship is the way we live our lives individually, but it's also a corporate thing. I'm not really in love with the mega churches in our country at all. But I will have to tell you that we're all a member of a mega church and it's going to be all together one day. It's going to be a lot of people and we're going to worship our Lord and we're going to do a lot of singing and maybe some dancing. Uh, Close your Bible and look at me. I I want you to see me. I think I can almost see everybody. This is, this is what you have to work on. Look at my hands. You know something about God. God is my right hand. You certainly know something about yourself. You are yourself. You know intuitively and instinctively that God is over you, bigger than you. Even if you're an atheist, you would know that such a person would be, would be above you. But look at the distance between my two hands. When you come to faith in Christ, you must be understanding you must, of your sinfulness, that the gap is pretty big. Hopefully, in your understanding of the gospel, you also understand how great God is to love you. And that's when we get saved, when we sort of realize, this is where I am as a sinner. I'm not God. This is God, how great he is. But here's the problem, you guys, with our worshiping. You have got to work on extending the gap. It won't do any good to make yourself into some worthless worm. You're not worthless, and you're not worthy, but you're worthwhile. That's why Christ died for you. But as you understand better and better your sinfulness and how you are rescued... Then you get farther and farther away about how you're looking at God. And so as you're growing into Christ, this gap is supposed to be increasing. And guess who bridges the gap? It is Christ. And so the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as you grow. What are you doing about this growth? That is what affects your worship. Some of you sing and worship God like the gap is like this. Some of you know how to sing, how to worship, because you know the gap is like this and it's growing. I'm asking you. Well, understand what the Bible says about yourself, what the Bible says about the love of God and his great holiness and what it takes to save you is the big, gigantic, and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the cross of Christ and the, the Christ who saves us. That's what you have to grow in, and that will affect your worship and your perspective and your testimony. Is your Bible closed? I'm done, but I got one more thing. If you are a visitor today, thank you so much. A guest, thank you for being here. What I'm about to say is not to you, it's to my members. Jeremiah 8.20 says, the harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Jeremiah was despondent at the lack of repentance and faith in God and and, and holiness of his people at his time. After all the prophecies that they've had. Now listen, you guys. I'm not saying anything about your salvation. I'm saying this, Redeemer. We're not out of the woods yet. You better hold tight to the gospel. Trouble is on its way because that's what God has ordained for us. And I know it Hold tight, endure, remember your love for one another. There's much praying to do. There is weakening faith in the church. There is great discouragement. We're not saved yet. We're not in heaven yet. The road's going to be tough for us. I need for you to endure and prepare and pray and go back to the gospel. Summer's ended, we're not saved. There's more to go, okay? Will you? Will you hang on? And will you stay faithful, church? Will you pray? Pray with me. Father, thank you for the word. And our last psalm this year, Psalm 30, we have so much to praise you for. We have our own testimony individually, the church as a whole. You've been so good to us, so kind to us. Help my brothers and sisters and myself to make the cross of Jesus bigger and bigger, the glory of God bigger and bigger in Christ, and thus testify and thus worship you in all that we're doing. We pray for a deep impact on the community as people see us as worshipers of Jesus Christ. Please make that happen. But our faith may be weak and we need encouragement. I pray for the truth of the scriptures very, very ineptly preached this morning to penetrate our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I pray that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who died for us, who rose again, who's interceding. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.